Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he examines why the legislature has kept funding for the Oklahoma Ethics Commission flat for several years and what implications that could have for the upcoming 2024 election cycle. Keaton, how was the Oklahoma Ethics Commission formed? And tell us a little about its main responsibilities. It was formed through a state question that that was put before voters in 1990. So it's been around for over 30 years now. Um, and it's essentially like the the police of campaign finance. Um, they they look at elected officials, conflicts of interest, um, who's who's donating to their campaigns, uh, as well as outside groups that are uh, contributing to elections, supporting a candidate or supporting an issue. Um, so they're 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 looking over all of that sort of campaign finance spending and um, keeping an eye out uh, maybe for anything that's irregular um, or that uh, that shouldn't be happening there. All right. Well, in terms of manpower and funding, what kind of resources does the Ethics Commission have at its disposal? As of now, the Ethics Commission has five full time employees. Um, there's there's also a board that that votes on decisions, but of course that's that's a voluntary board. Um, so they have that pretty small staff, and their overall budget uh, is around six hundred and eighty eight thousand dollars annually, um, which is very small for a state agency. Now, how does Oklahoma's ethics funding say compare to similar states, similar size states? So when I spoke to the Ethics Commission's executive director, uh, she told me it's it's can be a little tricky to compare states just because, you know, one state might have more responsibilities, one state might ha- have less responsibilities, some might be looking at local campaigns or state campaigns exclusively. Um, but when they did an analysis, they found that uh, Louisiana and Connecticut, um, their responsibilities are pretty similar to Oklahoma's Ethics Commission's. Um, both pretty similar population to Oklahoma, and uh, they both have annual budgets last year of exceeding $1.5 million. Um, so comparing that to Oklahoma, $688,000, uh, pretty big gap there. Now, uh, earlier this year, the Ethics Commission requested nearly $400,000 in additional funding for fiscal year 2024. That would be a big jump from what they're getting now. What justification did they offer? One of the main points of their budget presentation was highlighting just the amount of uh, what's called independent expenditures, um, which are supporting a candidate or a cause Um, They're not supposed to coordinate with that candidate or cause. Um, And oftentimes these groups don't disclose their donors. So that's that's what we might might hear of as dark money. Um, That spending really rose in 2022 uh, compared to the last midterm cycle in 2018. Um, And coming with that was uh, some groups that maybe are based in Washington, D.C. or out of states uh, trying to skirt some requirements or do some things uh, that that 
aren't under the the state's reporting requirements. Um, so while the spending is technically legal, as you get more spending in more groups in, the likelihood that they try to skirt those requirements goes up. Um, so that was a big part of their presentation. And, you know, maybe just uh, for clarity, some folks on the independent expenditures or, or dark money. Um, my understanding is, you know, we've long had uh, state laws that say an individual can give X number of dollars to a candidate for their campaign that goes into their campaign fund, their war chest, and they spend that on ads or mailers or phone calls or events or what whatever they think they need to do to get elected. When we're talking about individual expenditures, um, we're talking about uh, groups sort of outside those confines that maybe buy their own ads and do their own thing without even necessarily talking to the candidate about what they're doing. And a lot of times we see those manifest in the form of attack ads on their opponents, for example. Is that right? That's right. And and we really saw that open up after the, the 2010 Supreme Court decision uh, in Citizens United uh, that that effectively said that, uh, you know, those nonprofit groups, other organizations have a First Amendment right to support a, a candidate or a cause so long as they aren't coordinating with them. Um, so that that spending has gone up a lot along with, as you mentioned, some of those attack ads, uh, criticism that that a lot of the, the advertisements materials coming from these groups uh, may be stretching the truth or um, not you know, in line with what we've seen previously in political campaigns. Um, so that that's certainly a, a development we saw starting in 2010, and that spending has accelerated in recent years. And you alluded to this a little bit, but, but what other kind of tactics uh, do we see some of those dark money groups using here? Yeah, so the main, the main thing is just, you know, if you're out of state, uh, tweaking your name, or maybe you have like a ghost address or a ghost phone number with a with a 405 area code or a 918 area code, trying to make it look like you're a local organization when you're in fact not. Um, that's that's one of the big things. Uh, the Ethics Commission actually settled the case with a, a D.C.-based group that, that did this, uh, essentially this tactic in the 2018 cycle. Um, and that's bad for voters because I think generally uh, when you talk to people voting in an Oklahoma election, they're, they're probably more likely to weigh a message that's coming locally as opposed to out of state. Um, so if you're, you're getting something that looks like it's in state um, when it's in fact not, uh, that's that's not a good thing for elections. All right. Well, how can the state crack down on those groups? So they ethics commission doesn't uh, really have the authority to crack down on on the messaging or if, uh, you know, a statement is is false or exaggerated or that sort of thing. Um, it really comes down to those uh, what's in the state's reporting requirements as far as listing your address, phone number, where you're really based. Um, those sorts of things um, are, are the main thing. And when you have less manpower and an influx of money, um, keeping up with that in real time becomes a lot more uh, difficult. All right. Well, besides cracking down on reporting violations from outside groups, what does the Ethics Commission uh, say it could accomplish if it had that additional funding? So as part of that 400000 we mentioned earlier that of additional funding that they requested at the start of the year, um, some of that was allocated towards uh, what they call a political subdivision unit, 
which would basically be an effort to try to get uh, those campaign finance reports that are, that are required in local elections, say like mayoral election. Um, they those reports are are filed and available, but they're they're pretty difficult to get compared to uh, state reports that you can just go online and get. So part of that effort would be to um, get those those reports in line and in the same system as the state. So you could go online and, and look up, um, you know, the reports for, for your town's mayor election. Um, but ultimately, they did not get that funding. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read all of Keaton's coverage of the Ethics Commission and their budget woes and how that affects Oklahoma voters on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He's been following the United States Supreme Court case, Brookine versus Haland. And uh, the court released its much-anticipated opinion last week. Lionel's here to talk about that decision and what it means for Indian country in Oklahoma and beyond. Lionel, how did the justices vote, and uh, what was their decision? The justices voted 7-2 to two to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act, and they rejected every challenge to the constitutionality of the act based on merits of some of the arguments and also for lack of standing. Well, what were the uh, challenges brought to the court? There were two main arguments being made by the plaintiffs. Uh, the state of Texas and two other states, Louisiana and Indiana, were making a pretty classic states' rights argument. They argued that because the federal constitution delegates the regulation of family law to states, Congress overstepped its authority when it passed the Indian Child Welfare Act in the 70s. There were also a handful of non-native adoptive families, including the Brekkeens, who the case is named after, who at one point or another attempted to or managed to adopt an Indian child. They argued the placement priorities established by the Indian Child Welfare Act, which say Indian children are to be fostered and adopted by immediate family or other unrelated tribal families, uh, violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment by discriminating against them because they're white. Well, on what basis did the court reject those arguments? The state's rights argument was rejected based on its merits. The court said the federal government has the exclusive authority to legislate matters relating to tribal nations. They invoked the Indian Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which says Congress has a broad authority to regulate commerce with tribes as sovereign political entities. The clause is based on treaty and trust relationships the United States made with its tribes in our nation's early history. Um, the court also mentioned a few historical Supreme Court decisions that broaden Congress's legislative powers under the Commerce Clause, um, Cotton Petroleum Corp. versus New Mexico and United States versus Holiday. Together, those cases say that Congress can legislate tribal affairs beyond commerce as they apply to nations and individuals. Then there's the, the race-based argument, which the court dismissed because they determined the plaintiffs didn't have standing to make it. Uh, to have standing, plaintiffs must prove that they have been harmed by the law and that the decision, a decision by the court, can mitigate that harm. Uh, in this case, the court determined that Texas as a state is, is not protected by the Equal Protection Clause. You have to be a person for it to apply to you. Um, and the Brekkeens, at the time of the case, or by the time the case was filed, uh, they'd already adopted one Indian child. So their argument that the law discriminated against them because they were white was just kind of stale in the eyes of the court. The harm they were trying to prove just wasn't there. So what does the decision mean for Native nations and Native families? 
For nations, it's uh, another affirmation of their sovereignty. Uh, it also ensures their prolonged existence by keeping children who learn their languages and culture and politics within their tribes for future generations. For families, it means the protections provided by the Indian Child Welfare Act stay in place. Families who want to stay together, and a majority do, uh, with a few exceptions, they can stay together. It means Indian children will grow up seeing their, you know, their moms, their dads, their aunties, their uncles, their grandparents, which is uh, a vital aspect of, of Native community building. Was there anything in particular that uh, stood out to you about the opinions? Yeah. The, the fact that the Supreme Court dismissed the racial discrimination challenge for lack of standing means that they just didn't decide on it. Uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote a concurrent opinion explaining this. It means the door is still open for that argument to be made in lower courts, state courts. And when a prospective adoptive family comes along that can prove that harm, they can make the argument. So is it likely then that we will see uh, more challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, some based on racial discrimination? You know, I spoke to the Cherokee Nation's Attorney General, Sarah Hill, about this, as well as a Choctaw Nation prosecutor who focuses on uh, child welfare cases named Gina South. They said there's always a distinct possibility, you know, never say never, uh, but that it's unlikely it will reach the Supreme Court again anytime soon. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Hill pointed out the fact that the Brett versus Halen case was a manufactured one. It did not arise organically. The law firm that brought the case to the court, Gibson Dunn, and the attorney who represented the plaintiffs, Matthew McGill, went out of their way to find the Brackeens. They scoured the country to find a case they thought would advance the argument they wanted to make, and then offered to represent them pro bono for free. That's key because these cases argued in federal court are, uh, if they get enough traction to, to get to that point, um, are very costly and drawn out, sometimes over many years. The chances of a family wanting to or being able to carry a case through federal court on their own dime is highly unlikely, uh, especially now that there's precedent to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act from the highest court in the country. All right, what's next for tribes in Oklahoma? Well, one thing Gina South, uh, the Choctaw Nation attorney, said is that the protections provided by the Indian Child Welfare Act only work if there are enough uh tribal foster and adoptive families to take in children who need it. Uh, right now, there are more Indian children in custody of child welfare agencies, state and tribal, uh, than there are Native families to house them. She suggested there are some actions being taken to change that. What those actions look like depend on the tribe. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read Lionel's coverage of the Supreme Court decision in Burkine versus Haland, as well as all his work related to uh, race and equity on our website, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to Ainsley Martinez. Ainsley is a student at the University of Central Oklahoma and is interning at Oklahoma Watch this summer. We thought we'd take the opportunity for you to get acquainted with her a little. Ainsley, uh, welcome to Long Story Short. Thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, tell us first a little bit about uh, your background, what you're studying at school, and uh, why you chose to pursue that particular path. Yeah, so I'm originally from Edmond, and I go to the University of Central Oklahoma. I study professional media, but I kind of have an emphasis on data reporting and data visualizations. So I really got into that just because um, I like the deep dives. I really like to work with data, and um, I'm just really passionate about writing as well. 
What uh, what led you down that path? How did you discover that interest? Yeah, so I really discovered it at an early age. I actually have a disability, so um, that kind of made me see the things that I couldn't do in life a lot easier. So um, when I discovered writing, I just knew that that's the path um, for me. When I was 11, I um, decided on journalism because I really wanted to document history and live through history. Um, and I read a quote at the museum that said, there are three people who run towards danger and not away, police, firemen, and reporters. And that just really solidified um, the journalism experience for me. Well, what have you uh, discovered since you got started at UCO? There's, uh, it never turns out exactly the way you pictured it in your head. So uh, what, what have the surprises been so far? Yeah, I mean, you are definitely right. It's not what you expect. Um, I've definitely learned a lot of other areas of journalism that I wasn't really particularly interested in. So uh, broadcast and radio but and video. And I think those things really just um, bolster my skill set in journalism. Um, and really, I mean, this new world of journalism is multimedia. So I think that's very uh, beneficial to me, even though it wasn't what I um, particularly wanted. So uh, long term, right? Everybody uh, sort of pictures what they're going to be doing somewhere down the road and kind of how they want to shape their careers. Um, Often that doesn't work out exactly the way you pictured it either. But uh, at the moment, what are what do you have in your head for yourself? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny and um, it's kind of perfect why I am at the Oklahoma Watch right now. Um, I really want to start my own nonprofit news organization catered to media literacy and accessibility, particularly in communities that um, struggle with misinformation. Um, So this kind of age of nonprofit journalism, I think, is really important. Um, especially when, you know, you're looking at press as a constitutional right, um, as a public service and as something that shouldn't be, um, capitalized off of. Well, uh, you did end up at a, uh, nonprofit news organization for the summer. Tell us what led you specifically to Oklahoma Watch. How did that come about and how do you see that fitting in for you? Yeah, well, I like to think of it as fate because I was at um, an award ceremony at the Oklahoma State University and I just went to a seminar. Mike Sherman, the executive editor, um, was, you know, talking to the class and um, it kind of was just brought up as an opportunity. Um, So we talked about it a little bit and then it was very smooth sailing since then. So it was very um, on a whim, last minute but I couldn't have been happier with the decision. The, um, you know, you've been at Oklahoma Watch for a couple of weeks uh, now, right? Since early June. So um, same question. What, what has surprised you so far about the way it works in real life? Yeah, um, I really enjoy the flexibility and the opportunity um, to grow at Oklahoma Watch. I think both you and Mike um, really lead without um feeling kind of me feeling kind of patronized in a way. So it's like I'm able to learn from you all, but also still kind of do my own thing. And I think um, the topics that I bring up, um, you know, disability coverage and other topics like that, I'm very appreciative that it's been received so well. 
Well, uh, one of those topics, disability coverage that you just mentioned, right? You um, instigated an investigation of your own, a, a project that you're working on over the summer. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, so I had this idea to create a database of an interactive map of um, restaurants and shopping areas, businesses, um, and kind of seeing how accessible they are um, because, you know, there's not one size fits all for accessibility practices um, and ADA laws are kind of convoluted and complicated. Um, so I really wanted to build this tool for people with disabilities so they have a centralized unit of um, how accessible places are so they're not shocked when they go into a restaurant and maybe, you know, they can't navigate as well, um, you know, these special occasions um, for people going out to eat anniversaries um, can really feel um, disappointing when you can't navigate the restaurant and it becomes more of a hassle and burden of going out to eat and things like that. So I really wanted to create a tool for people to be able to, um, you know, take that onto themselves. What, uh, what would you consider a successful internship? I think a successful internship would um, just be if I learned something, if I grew from it, um, if I realized more about my path going forward. And I think I've already kind of had the wheels turning in that sense. So I can already predict that it's going to be a successful one. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Ainsley. Ainsley Martinez is one of our interns this summer at Oklahoma Watch uh, here from the University of Central Oklahoma. You'll be able to read all of her work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.